turn your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3 again tonight. We're not going to be reading through that whole chapter. We read through it last week. We're going to be looking at one particular verse, however, in it. So I want you to find that so when we're ready to read that verse, um, you'll be able to turn to that and follow along with me as I read. Last week, you discovered that this is both an important and a difficult chapter for us, a portion of chapter for us to understand. But we also discovered that it's not necessary that we resolve all that difficulty for us to get the important message. And we discovered that the important message that all Bible-believing pastors and teachers would agree upon is that sin is a danger to the Christian, and sin is something we should stay as far away from as we possibly can. Now tonight we're going to go a little bit further into this verse and into the Word of God in general to find out why that is true. Why is sin so dangerous and why do we need to stay so far away from it? And we're going to look at, to begin with, um, in Hebrews chapter 3 there, we're going to look at verse 13. Because in that verse we have two answers to that question. The first, uh, in, answer, in verse 13, we read, I'm reading from kind of the American Standard Version. I always kind of make a few changes as we go along, and I'll actually make a change on that second word. American Standard says, but encourage one another. The word really there is not meaning encourage. The word is a little bit more strong than that. It really means more like to exhort or to confront one another. Uh, and so he says that we need to we need to exhort one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The first reason sin is so dangerous and we need to stay so far away from it that we possibly can is seen in that word today. Now, we didn't read through the whole passage tonight, but we did read through the passage the other day. But I'm just going to skim over that for you. And I want you to see, if you write in your Bible, um, and I encourage you to do so. Uh, but if you write in your Bible, you may want to circle these occurrences of the word today. Uh, the, of course, right there in the beginning in uh, verse 7, second part of verse 7, it starts off with the word today. In the last half of verse 8, there it says, as in the day. And then in the verse that we read, it says twice, day after day. And then again, it emphasizes again the word today. And then again in 15, the word today is used again. And then finally, it's not in my portion, it's one of the other guy's portion, but over in 4-7, the same verse is quoted again, and the same word is used again, today. Now, he just told us that we need to exhort one another, that we need to confront one another with the, with the reasons for the danger of sin. And the first thing he says to us is this word, today, 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 today. Now, I have to be honest, I got a little bit of this idea from Pastor on our group on Saturday morning as we were talking about the verse. And he, he made that observation that that word occurs several times in this passage. And indeed, it does for a very specific purpose. In fact, if you go up to the beginning of the quotation out of the Old Testament, where the first reference to today occurs, if you were to trace that out, you find out that's really a, a quotation from Psalm 95. Uh, 
If you go to Psalm 95, you find out that that's really a quotation from Numbers chapter 20. And if you think a little bit about Numbers chapter 20, you discover that that is the final year of the 40 years that the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness and that they were on the verge of ending into the promised land. And it was the very last crisis that they had in their journey from Egypt to the promised land. And even more interesting, if you go back to when they began their journey in the wilderness to Exodus chapter 17, you find out they dealt with the very same sin in Numbers 20, on the last day of their wandering in the wilderness, that they did on the very first day that they set out. Both instances, they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against God because of a lack of water. Now, it's easy for us to maybe give the Israelites a rough time and say, how could they do that? But if you just think a little bit, the number of people that are involved, several hundred thousand to a million, it depends upon which Bible teacher you read, but several hundred thousand people would have required over five million gallons of water a day. This was no light problem that they were facing. This was a huge problem. And it very easy for them, and it's very easy for us when we face a huge problem for us to resort to human thinking to solve the problem. And when that doesn't solve the problem, to grumble against God. I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us here with emphasizing the word today and and quoting that passage, uh, specifically quoting that passage, and then using it in reference to the word day, I think he's trying to tell us is that it doesn't matter where you are in your Christian journey. It doesn't matter where you're just starting out in your Christian journey. It doesn't matter if you're uh, in the middle of your wandering in the wilderness. It doesn't matter if you're on the very edge of entering into the promised land of heaven. You're going to have to deal with sin. Living in a fallen world means that sin is an ever-present choice that we must choose against. It is never going to leave us. We are never going to arrive at a place where we no longer are threatened by sin. And so the first reason we must take sin very seriously and that it's dangerous and we need to stay far away from it is that it is constantly there. In fact, in, in Genesis, God, told, God said that, uh, th- that sin is knocking at the door and its desire is for you. Sin is always couching and waiting and looking for an opportunity to weasel its way in to the Christian life and cause disharmony and disunity and all the other problems that sin causes in our life. There's a second reason there given as well in our our passage in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14. Look at that with me again if you would. Excuse me, 13. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Second reason that sin is dangerous 
that we need to stay as far away from it as possibly can is that sin is deceitful beyond measure. Now, I dare say if I were to ask you, give you the opportunity to give me some examples of some sins that were bad for the Christian's life, we could come up with a pretty long list, pretty short time. The Bible gives us several lists of sins, multiple sins listed time and time, one right after another, after another, after another. And there's several places where individual sins are referenced to. So that we'd have no problem with coming up with examples of sins, even bad sins. In fact, I dare say if we did that, most of the sins that we would come up with are going to be what I would call bad morally, bad ethically, or bad legally. And indeed, those things are bad. And indeed, calls us, God calls us to avoid those and to actually pursue the opposites. But that is really where the deceitfulness of sin lies. You probably noticed by now that I'm an old school guy. Just by the way I dress. My wife tells me every week I need to wear jeans. I just can't do it. So, or shorts, yeah, really can't do that. Yeah, when the day I do it, you'll know I backslid. No, no, no. It's just, I don't know. But some of you guys that are a little bit older might remember this. I don't know if the younger folks, if this is even saying anymore, but there was an old chorus called, I don't know if it was called, but it was, the words were deep and wide. Deep and wide. I'm not singing it. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Now, the fountain is referring to is the blood of Jesus. And the reason that the fountain must flow deep and wide is that the problem with sin is deeper and wider than we ever believe that it is. It goes far deeper. It goes far wider than morally, ethically, and legally bad things. Now, we need as Christians to avoid those things. But if we only avoid those things, we're not going to be free from the deceitfulness of sin. Because it goes deeper and it goes wider than that. I was going to ask you to think of the absolute worst sin that you could think of. But then I don't want to do that. Because there are some sins that are just absolutely repulsive uh, and, and, and depressing and, and discouraging uh, to, to think about. But what I want us to think about together for a few moments here in answer to this question, what is the essence of the deceitfulness of sin that is so dangerous to us? I'm going to talk to you about what I call the worst rebuke of sin in the Bible. I'm going to talk to you about what I call the worst struggle against sin in the Bible. And then thirdly, if we still have any time left, I'm going to talk to you about what the worst effect of sin is in the Bible. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, where we have recorded for us what I'm calling the worst rebuke of sin 
in the Bible. And I think when you read it and think about it for a few moments, you will agree with me that indeed it is exactly that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22 is where we're going to look at first. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, and here it is, get behind me, Satan. That's the strongest, sternest rebuke that Jesus gave to anybody in the Bible. In fact, you know the only other person he ever rebuked that way? Satan himself. I mean, if you think about it, he didn't say, Peter, Peter, you're acting like Satan. He didn't say, Peter, don't think like Satan. He specifically, directly called Peter Satan. He said, Satan, get behind me. Word for word what he said to Satan in the, in the temptation in the wilderness. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Now, if you think about that from human viewpoint, if human feelings and human reasoning and human thinking, what's so bad? I mean, Peter loved Jesus. Peter forsake everything and was following Jesus. Peter believed in Jesus. Peter didn't want to see Jesus harmed or hurt in any way whatsoever. whatsoever. He probably had the best of intentions. I don't think there was any uh, bad intentions in his mind when he rebuked Jesus. I think he was simply relying on his own human reasoning and thinking and feeling. And because of that, he was led into what we'll see in a few minutes, a pretty grievous sin. So grievous that Jesus gives him the strongest rebuke in the Bible. Go up a few verses, and you'll see in verse 14, there was really a discussion going on about the identity of Jesus. Who, who is Jesus? And some people were saying one thing, and some people saying another thing, and some people saying a third thing. And now in verse 15, then Jesus says to the group, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that sounds great to our ears, but to our ears it doesn't sound as great as it really is. Because Jesus goes on to say, this is nothing, Peter, that you would have ever arrived at upon your own thinking. He goes on to say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who, who is in heaven. That was really almost a blasphemous thing for a Jew to say. Because the Jews never had any concept of the incarnation of God becoming a man, of God taking on human flesh. That was almost, that was a thought that was too blasphemous for them to really entertain. So this was a huge revelation that Peter received. Tremendous blessing from God uh, when he said that. And in fact, Jesus himself confers that. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. This is a huge blessing from God, a huge revelation from God about the identity of Jesus. 
who he really was. But that's not all. Go down here in verse um, 20. Then he began to warn the disciples. Oh, excuse me, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be raised on the third day. Now, how did he show them? Well, he didn't show them with a video because they didn't have videos. More than likely, what he did was he did, that's recorded for us in the book of Luke, he took them through the Old Testament and showed them through the Old Testament that these are the prophecies, these are what they meant, this is who I am, and this is from God, and Peter, it's a blessing for you to have received it from God and to hear the teaching. Now think about this, a personal Bible study with Jesus. Now I know what you'd think. If we hadn't been talking about this and I asked you, how would you respond to a personal Bible study with Jesus? You would say, oh, man, I'd be awestruck. Oh, I'd, I'd hang on every single word that he said. Oh, I, I would be excited. Oh, I would be thrilled to death. Oh, I would even stay past 12 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> if Jesus was going to give me a personal Bible study. What did Peter do? Peter contradicted, directly contradicted, the revelation that the Heavenly Father had given him and the Bible study that Jesus had given him. Was it because Peter was bad? No. It's because Peter was malicious and he hated Peter and, I mean, he hated Jesus and he wanted to hurt Jesus? No. <laughs> it was simply because Peter relied on his own human thinking and reasoning. Most of us, if we heard that for the first time, it's so familiar to us that he's going to suffer and die and rise on the third day. It's too familiar, I think. We, we, we miss the depth of it. So it's so familiar to us that, that we, it, we just kind of coast right over it. But to Peter, it was completely outside of anything he had humanly thought or felt or believed in his whole life. And so he reverted to human thinking and human reasoning. Let's look at what I call the worst struggle of sin. This one probably surprise you. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. As you're turning there, I'm going to tell you. This is Jesus. Again, that's not a way that we really think about Jesus. We think of him with a halo over his head in the cradle in the manger. And he is such a godly person that uh, sin could never touch him or trouble him, that he would always know and desire and want to do the right thing. But the Bible teaches us that he was human and tempted in every way, not just tempted, Tempted in every way, just like we are. So any temptation that you have ever experienced, and it's not just that you have experienced any temptation that any human being, because the, the we, he's human like we are, the we is human beings. Any temptation that a human being 
has ever faced and struggled with, we're told that Jesus struggled against it as well. Look at chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Very uh, deep, strong words in, in the Greek. Grieved and distressed. It's not just, oh, I got a little problem here. This is deep, personal agony and distress. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. Here's how deep it is. To the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little ways beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou will. And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, he certainly is referring to, to the Peter and the rest of the disciples, but I think it's also referring to his own struggle at this point in time. Remember who this is. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who Philippians tells us that he did not count his right to honor and glory and worship and power and dominion in heaven. He did not count that as something that he should hang on to, but he voluntarily gave it all up and became incarnate in a human being and found himself in human flesh. And you know what happened when he found himself in human flesh? Just like you and me. He found himself struggling with human thinking as opposed to God's divine will. In fact, more than you or I have ever dreamed of struggling. I mean, he knew, he knew God's will absolutely, exhaustively, perfectly. He had already voluntarily discussed it with the Heavenly Father. It was something that was settled from eternity past. It was not something like us that we are always trying to find what God's will is in our life. And we are never quite sure even if we do find it. You know, I'm a retired pastor. And... Uh, the decision to retire from the pastorate is something that I struggled with for a year and a half. And when I finally made the decision, you know what? I still wasn't sure. Are, are you ever? I have never been sure of God's will in my life 100%. There's always that, well, I don't know, if, maybe 95, 85 you move out on faith, and God confirms it and leads you on in direction. But Jesus didn't have that trouble. He knew personally from his own personal uh, divine thinking, he knew what God's will was. But on the other hand, as a human being, he knew that he did not want to do that. In fact, the Bible tells us, you know, they, they tell us that you forget pain, that God created us so that you forget pain. That's why women have more than one baby. Right? If they remembered how bad it was, they would never have another one. 
but they forget it. And then all they think about is all the blessings and joy and the happiness and all that kind of stuff. But the Bible says that Jesus created the human body. Now, you and I can think about pain. I, we can read about the pain of the crucifixion. We can read about the torture, the thirst, the shame. We can read about all of those things. But we're just reading. Jesus created the pain receptors and knew what the pain was going to be. Knew what the shame was going to be. Knew what it was going to feel like to have the Heavenly Father turn His back and abandon Him on the cross. We just read about it. And we humanly think about it. But Jesus divinely knew it personally. And as he did, he struggled. Had to pray three times. In fact, Luke tells us his struggle was so intense humanly that his sweat was tinged with blood. The writer of Hebrews later is going to say, you and I never struggled to that point, have we? We know we have never have. But Jesus did. It was the worst struggle against sin recorded in the Bible. And yet, from a human viewpoint, it seemed quite natural, doesn't it? Who'd want to be crucified? <laughs> Who wouldn't think, there must be some other way. I mean, come on, Father. My grandson is great at that. He always has some other way that we should do what I've told him to do. And we always have to discuss it. And I sometimes sin and give in to him. <laughs> Third thing I want us to think about is the worst effect of sin in the Bible. The very worst effect of sin in the Bible. And this one will really begin to hone, on, hone in on the deceptiveness of sin. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to pick up at verse 7. Honey, where's my card? Oh, no. You know how in the Olympics they hold up numbers? Nine, ten, eight. She's supposed to hold up what time I'm supposed to stop. Oh, well. That's, we'll, we'll hurry here. Seven. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow. Now here we go. If you write underline, every tree that is pleasing to the sight. Every tree that is pleasing to the sight. Not some that are and some that aren't, but every tree that is pleasing to the sight. And 
good for food. Again, not some that aren't good, not some that are poisonous, but every tree that is good for food. Now, every tree in the garden is pleasing to the sight and good for food, including the next trees, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, pleasing and good for food, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, which is good, pleasing to the sight and good for food. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, is that true? Her, room, her, her human reasoning, true there? Accurate? Exactly. It was good for food. There was nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It had been not only created by God, but created by God, good for food. She was just seeing things the way they are from a human perspective. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Anything wrong there? It absolutely was. We just read that God made it pleasing to the sight. It was a delight to the eyes. From her human reasoning, everything she saw, it was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. When she saw this, and that it was desirable to make one wise, and she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her and ate. You see, when Eve was functioning on her own human reasoning and thinking, it was completely accurate and valid as far as she knew. In fact, you know what? The truth of the matter is, from the Bible, there wasn't anything wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing wrong with it. It was good for the sight, and it was good for food. You know what was wrong? God said, don't do it. Now, it's a little bit more than that. Because notice what it says. It's the tree of the knowledge of what? Good on this side. Evil on this side. Now, what's in between those two extremes? Everything else. Everything else. You see, God was saying to her that if... You want to have knowledge apart from me, you're going to die. Now, you're not going to die immediately, but you're going to usher in death into your lives. Have you ever done that? Made a decision? Taken an action on the basis of your human reasoning and thinking alone apart from the word of God? I'll tell you what, our society and country is full of death from that. The deceitfulness of sin, the danger of sin, is it is always a constant present. And it always is tempting us to think that we can have knowledge of anything apart from the dependence upon the word of God. Now, unless that, if that makes you fearful and wondering if you always have to be looking over your shoulder and what can we do about it, let me give you three things that we can do. 
Do I have the time for three? This one might say a little crass to you, but the first thing we need to do is cram the Word of God into our minds. We need to cram it in there, and even more so in the day and age in which we live in, because I don't think there's even ever been a time when a society, our society was more dominated by ungodly human thinking than it is today. In and out of the church, everywhere that you go, everything that you listen to, and it's not necessarily all evil morally, ethically, or, or legally, but it is contrary many, many times to the spiritual standards in the Word of God. Because you see, the issue of sin is never only moral. Now, it only always leads to that. The issue of sin is never only ethical. Now, it always leads to that. The, the issue of sin is never always Ill illegality. It always leads to that. The essence of sin Human thinking and reasoning alone will eventually lead us to immorality, unethical behavior, and illegal behavior. Unless it's restrained by the word of God. So we need to cram God's word into our minds. Turn to Psalm chapter 19. I try and... Excuse me, not 19, 119. Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, there's, there's a key verse. But the verse is really uh, embedded in even something that is, that is even more key. The verse is verse 11. Thy word I've crammed into my heart. Well, it doesn't say that. That's my translation. Thy word I've hid in my heart, I think is the King James Version. The American Standards, thy word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. That verse is telling us, my friends, if we do not cram God's word into our heart, sooner or later, the spiritual essence of sin, we're going to rely upon our own human thinking and reasoning for something, decision we make, some action we take, some feeling we indulge in, some desire we satisfy. Sooner or later, we'll do that because we can justify anything. Now, what makes this verse so powerful, I don't know if you know this, it was the longest chapter in the Bible. And it actually, pastor would love this in the Hebrew Bible because there are, each one of these paragraphs, uh, the first word of each sentence in each paragraph begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, do you have any idea before computers how much work that would have taken? Now, why did the author of Psalms here go to so much work? Because the whole, each one of those begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, goes through the whole Hebrew alphabet, alphabet, 22 letters, each one of those sections, and every single word begins with one, with the same letter of the alphabet in the first eight, in the eight verses, and eight verses, and eight verses, and eight verses. And the whole thing is about the word of God. Now, what does that all say? You put it all together. Hebrew, the Hebrew language was considered to be, considered to be a, a sacred language and is saying that the word of God must encompass all of our thinking, including every single letter in the alphabet. What did Jesus say? Not a mark, 
Not a small part of punctuation will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. So we need to cram God's word into our heads. It is the only way that we're going to find ourselves thinking God's thoughts after him. If we, and prepare ourselves for wherever we find ourselves on this journey. There's no way to anticipate where you're going to find yourself, where you're going to be confronted, where you're going to struggle, where you're not going to understand, where you're going to be tempted. There's no way to anticipate that, but there is a way to prepare for it. And that is if you're feeding and cramming God's word into your mind. The second thing is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Verse you all know, you don't really need to turn to that. We'll just quote that in essence of time here. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know what? If you're cramming God's word into your mind, you know what's going to happen? God's going to reveal some flaws to you. And you know what's going to happen if you're cramming God's word into your mind? You're going to discover some failures in your life. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to give up, throw up your hands? No. This verse says we are to confess our sins to God. Now, confess doesn't mean we just admit to some action. The word means in the Greek to say the same thing. What he's saying in 1 John 1, 9 is we need to say the same thing about our sins that God says about our sin. And notice it doesn't say confess our weaknesses. It doesn't say confess our issues. It doesn't say confess our problems. It doesn't even say confess our failures. You know what? I can live with issues. Can't you? I can live with problems, have all my life. I, I can live with weaknesses. Doesn't bother me at all. I can live with all those words that we use to hide from what we're supposed to be confessing. But you know what? If I call something in my life sin, I can't live with it. I have to forsake it. And that's why he says, confess our sins. Don't confess your, your sin to me as a problem or a weakness, an issue. Confess it to me as sin. And if you do that, I will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We need to cram God's word into mind. We need to confess our sins to God. Finally, we need to commit ourselves to a personal, practical obedience of the Word of God. Turn to Philippians. Chapter 2. Not chapter 2, sorry. It's chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 13. Could read more, but we're going to just shorten it down. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is after we confess our sins, we need to forget what lies behind. Now, this is Apostle Paul writing, and he's a great man. He's a godly man, wasn't he? Very godly man. He has a lot of positive things in his life. He also has a lot of bad things in his life that he needed to forget. 
So when he says forgetting what lies behind, is it's not just forget the bad things. Yes, we need when we've confessed them to sin to God as sin, we need to forget those things and we need to press on. Not not let the devil use that against us and discourage us and dishearten us, but just forget it and press on. We've confessed it to God, the price has been paid, he wants us to move forward. But likewise, we need to forget the good things. Don't hang on to the fact that you taught Sunday school and you've done this and we've done that and you've done all these good things. You need to forget the good, you need to forget the bad, and you need to press on to the upward and high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus. We just turn the page over to chapter 4 and we have him tell us what it is. This is what we need to be doing as Christians. Pressing on after these things. Chapter 4 verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is anything excellent and if there is anything worthy of praise, notice, let your mind dwell on these things. In closing, just two questions. Are you pressing on? Or are you drifting? Or floating? Or hoping? We need to be pressing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word. And we, th- we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives. That we might not just hear the word but that we would do it, that we would take the standards that you give us and that we would apply those, the guidance of your word, in every area of our lives, that we would press on to what is excellent and honorable and pure and holy and pleasing and glorifying to God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Too long? No. So...